0: From as young as I can remember, I wanted to go places on my own two feet. You know, I just started realizing the longer I go, the better I was doing. One lap at the Barclays is still to this day one of the hardest things I've done. Definitely the highlight of everything I've ever done was getting
1: to go to Bhutan recently. That was Nikki Wren, and this is episode 121 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner.
2: Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Nikki is an Australian-Canadian who loves the beach but is hopelessly addicted to the mountains, so has spent most of her adult life in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She came to adventure and endurance sports by way of competitive triathlon and road marathon. It's been over a decade since she raced on pavement, preferring instead adventure racing, mountain biking, ultramarathon running, fastpacking, skiing, orienteering, and mountain scrambling. When not running, Nikki works as an education consultant. She also loves to travel and write. In this episode, we discuss Nikki's upbringing in Australia and her female unsupported fastest known time of the 1,000-kilometer Mun track in Western Australia, as well as what inspires her to attempt such epic distances in epic places. This lady runner is a three-time finisher of Tour de Jean, a 330-kilometer race in Italy, Five-time attendee at the Barkley Marathons, second-place finisher at Sinister 7 100-Miler and Fat Dog 120, and has even done the Dragon's Back race in Wales on a punishing 305-kilometer course that will test the very Best. While Nikki has a resume that will stun even the most accomplished ultra runner, we primarily invited her on the podcast to talk about her most recent experience of running the snowman race in Bhutan with an invite from the king himself. Strap into your seats or drop the hammer on your run because this episode is bound to leave you feeling like you can accomplish anything. So, Nikki, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. We're so excited to talk to you tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat to you guys about running and all lots of cool adventures. Oh, there are so many adventures that we could talk about. We were just chatting before we hit record that we could probably do 10 podcasts based on everything that you have done. But um, I just wanted to share briefly how you came across my radar in the first place. So our listeners will remember back in the fall of 2020, we had actually late summer, we had Joanna Ford on to talk about her um, Hard Rock 100 experience. And she talked about this amazing pacer who was just so instrumental in her success. And I remember seeing this pacer's huge smile all over Facebook. And I'm staring at that huge smile right now. So <laughs> anyhow, we have Nikki, who is the pacer, but also her own amazing accomplished ultra runner in her own right with us tonight. And we're going to hear all about some recent... Um, pretty amazing experiences as well as learn a bit more about you. So why don't we start with that, Nikki? Why don't you tell us a little bit about just who you are, what you do, where you're coming to us from? Excellent. Thank you. Yes. So I'm actually coming
0: to you from Perth, Western Australia on a very hot summer morning. Uh, I'd say just close to 10 a.m. here, but I've actually been up since 5 a.m. and I always start my day by whipping down to the beach and uh, enjoying the ocean before the sun almost comes up and it's quiet down there. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm an Australian Canadian. Uh, I do live in Canada. I live in Calgary. It's where my house is and my belongings. And occasionally I'm there as well. Uh, but I, I travel a lot and I try to, I uh, dare I say, escape the majority of the Canadian winter and come down to, to my family and to my my roots in Australia every year and enjoy summer down here. So that's where I am right now. Why would you
2: want to do that? (laughs) You know, it's,
0: it is actually a hard call every year to, you know, I, I do, I I love to leave, but it's, uh, it's a little bittersweet when I come here in November, December, just because I love cross country skiing so much. So I always get Mm. like one or two skis in, and then I sort of second guess a little bit. I'm like, why am I leaving? And then I come and I get to Australia and I'm like, oh no, this is why I'm leaving. And this year it then turned (laughs) negative 46 or something ridiculous. So I was like, felt very guilty for that whole week when I was in my bikini and everyone else was like (laughs) dying at home. The frosty
2: eyelashes are coming (laughs) out. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
2: So, you know, your, your bio reads, not just with single digit distances, we're talking triple and sometimes four digit distance, not, really races necessarily, but adventures and FKTs. So I would like to hear like way back when, before you started getting into these really long multi-day events, how did you get into running in the first place? And was running actually one of your first passions? Like what, how did you develop as an athlete when you were young? It's always interesting
0: where people come to their craziness, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so I, I grew up in uh, central, sort of remote Australia, and I just remember having a childhood filled with being in the wild, and I always wanted to be in the wild. Like I, I just have strong memories of wandering off into the woods by myself, and. Just being alone in nature, I just loved it as young as I can remember, and I think that's probably where it started. Um, I also loved straight away anything to do with athletics. Like I was in on every sports team, I played every sport, not that well, but I did it anyway. And I think I used to, I learned really early on to love sports and movement and not care about results right away because I was never any good like I love tennis and I I've never basically won a tennis match in my life and I've played <laughs> I've played tennis <laughs> tournaments all as as a child and never won and I just didn't care so yeah I love that and I I always was into athletics and swimming I was on the swim team uh so yeah, I was just always a mover when I was a kid and then I remember I think when I was I like, probably like 13 or so or 12 even I was quite young I remember we used to go camping on the beach and there was another town about six or seven kilometers down the beach and I remember one day just deciding that I wanted to run to the next town down and like no one did that kind of thing back then and I was just a little girl and I was like oh, I'm just I think I can run to the next town down the beach and I did I remember being a bit scared you know you're on this coastal section all by yourself and I remember what it felt like to get to the next town and realizing you can go a long way on your own two feet and I think that was it like I was from as young as I can remember, I wanted to go places on my own two feet. I, I dreamed about doing a marathon when I was still like twelve or thirteen, and then, and then I just started doing those things. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, I think it's a a love of movement, a love of being outside, and a love of the accomplishment of of going places under your own power.
1: Mm-hmm. I-, I love that you could go really far on your own two feet. And I think that probably sets the stage for so much of what's come in your adventure life, right? But I do understand that you did some triathlon and you also did a road marathon before you started doing longer adventures. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so I did start on pavement. Uh, That's because, you know, in Australia, we don't have mountains. And back in those days, there wasn't any trail running here. So, yeah, I started in, came out of competitive swimming, which is often how a lot of Australians go into triathlon. And then I was always into running. So I just started triathlon at, I think I was 14 or 15 when I started triathlon. It was a school subject, actually. So, and I did really Really? well in it. Yeah. And I did, um, I just loved it. And then as soon as I left school, I just started going to all the weekend races and signing up and I did a lot of triathlon in the early years. And then, um, and went quite well with that. Like I ended up doing a couple of Ironmans and then I was on the uh, Team Canada and went to the World Champs for the long distance for, it was a long time ago. I used to be really fast and now I'm, I'm now I just slow and plod, but back in the day
1: <laughs> when we were all younger
0: and I just really loved the the discipline of the training. I think that, you know, when you're younger, that, that goes over well. And then um, mm-hmm. I did, yeah, I did eight marathons, I think. I just liked the marathon distance on the pavement. I liked the fact that you could go to a new city and run it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. lots of different places around the world I did the marathon. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I was quite competitive at the marathon distance, not like elite or anything, but, you know, I had, I was run, running really well back then. And so, yeah, and then I, I remember saying to myself, I was sort of dabbling in wanting to do trail and adventure and being off, off the pavement and i remember thinking the day i do a marathon slower than my previous the day i don't do a pb that's the day yeah. i quit marathon and so oh every my. marathon was faster and then my last one which was at this uh, in calgary actually was it wasn't a p wasn't my slowest but it was the first time i didn't go faster which is probably yeah. understandable in calgary <laughs> But yeah. I was like, that's it. That's the sign. And I never did another marathon again. That was
1: forget about the fact that I'm kind of at altitude and, and all the rest of it. I'm just going to, okay, no PB, yeah. no PB. That's later. it done.
0: And I, I mean, I was starting to run longer at that point too. And I knew that running longer was not conducive to my marathon speed. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're trying to push those really tight, you know, I was trying to go sub three. That was my, was my goal. I never did but that was my dream. I was close, but I knew that you just can't be running like willy nilly on the weekends, having a grand old time in the mountains, you know, and still try to get this sub three marathon time. You had to be on the track. You had to be doing like horrible, horrible workouts on pavement. And,
2: <laughs> and I
0: really, to be honest, just didn't, I was looking for an excuse to stop
2: I was going to say, we've heard a lot of reasons to, to leave the roads and move to the trails, but that one's a first. Yeah. <laughs> so you were already starting to run longer at this point now. Now, let's back up a bit. When did you move from Australia to Calgary or to Canada? And what brought you to Canada? So I came in, well, that's a story too.
0: I came in <laughs> uh, 1996. So that's what now, 27 years ago, I think now, if I do the math right, around about then. Uh, I was very young, I was 21, and I came over traveling, but I started my, my travels by biking from Vancouver to Prince Edward Island on a road bike. Uh, oh so goodness. I so I saw Canada from end to end, like the first time I ever stepped foot out of Australia, basically. And and I had relatives in Toronto, so I still have relatives in Toronto. So I ended up moving over there after that big bike ride and stayed for a while. And then when I'd ridden across Canada, I, we'd gone through the Crow's Nest Pass and um, I'd seen I'd never seen a mountain before in my life like I live in I grew up in the desert so I've never seen a mountain and I saw like through through Fernie that area I remember thinking oh, that's yeah. really cool and then some of the people I was riding with were like now you need to come back and see the mountains you can't just spend a day riding through them and so then I did I, I moved I came back to Calgary and I spent the entire rest of the year in Calgary and that was it it was you know there was no going back after that once I'd spent a summer in the mountains
2: Okay. Well, I can understand that because I moved back home to Calgary after 20 mm-hmm. plus years away and and every day I just think, <clears throat> wow, I get to live here? Like, really? It's it's such a blessing. So, anyhow, I can I can understand why you probably started being drawn more and more to to adventures, in, you know, in the mountains. How did your shift away from road running evolve in into really long ultra distance running?
0: Uh, I think I, you know, I just started realizing the longer I go, the better I was doing. So I actually went. Um, I, it took a while to get into ultra running as a pure sport. I went from road racing pretty much into adventure racing. So that sort of because of the triathlon, the multi sport. I was like, I'm just going to start doing multi sport off, you know, off grid. So, yeah, start started adventure racing. That was mountain biking, paddling. I, had a, I have a paddling background. I used to be a, a, a raft guide in Australia. So it was combining all of my, my passions together and also navigation, which is my other huge passion is orienteering. And, yeah, so I got to be on teams and we travelled a lot um, in a lot of different places to do these multi-day adventures. Like, you know, it was back in the time when I don't know if everyone, listeners remember the Eco Challenge years, mm-hmm. back in the early late 90s and the early 2000s. So I was very inspired by all of that. And I just wanted to be a big, big ass adventure racer and, and a navigator. And so, yeah, that's what got me there. And then, you know, I did that for a number of years and then realized that I can go for days. And so then, and then I, it got really expensive and complicated to do adventure mm-hmm. racing all the time. And I thought, hold on a second, <laughs> you can just take your shoes and go for a big long run. And do ultra running. And that sort of got me into right. ultra. And I still dabble in adventure racing, but it is, and I love it, but it is mm-hmm. a lot
1: easier to do ultra running. Right. Does anything uh, stand out from your days of multi day adventure racing? You were never on a TV show or, or anything <laughs> like that. When Eco Challenge is going on, you no, were never I, like, on one of the episodes? I but... wasn't, no,
0: because it kind of started to die off then.
1: Uh, I think I always wanted to
0: be when I was younger. Uh, but yeah, no, I just, I, just the fact of being with a team, I, I think the thing I always loved the most was the nights, you know, like getting to be in really wild places with a team of people in the night and going through a night and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, going through challenges together, it, you know, and, and it was really hard, really hard on the body and hard on your gear. And yeah. I just loved it. I loved it. I loved everything about it. You're wrecked for a day months after you do a big adventure <laughs> race. you're not sleeping and uh yeah. yeah it's in the places you got to go I think my favorite was I, I raced in New Zealand and which is the home adventure racing and it was the the scenery we got to go through just blew my mind I still have mm-hmm. you know shivers up my spine of some of the things we saw in New Zealand oh that's
2: amazing <clears throat> so we don't have time to go into all this, but I'm just going to read a few of the places you've been and the things you've done. So not just with adventure racing, but you've had three finishes at Tour de Jean um, in, is that all in Italy? Is, does that go through the three countries as well?
0: No, it's right in the corner, but it's all in Italy.
2: All in Italy. Okay. Um, that's 330 kilometers. Um, you have set the female FKT so fastest known time unsupported fastest known time. Please pronounce this for me. The Bibulum mm-hmm. track. Fun listening to you try everyone. No one can pronounce it. Uh, Bibbleman.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you for helping me out. Bibbleman track. We call it. Should we call it the Bib for short? Because no one can pronounce Bibbleman. It's a it's a Noongar word, an Aboriginal word here
2: uh, in Australia. Okay, the name for That's Bibbulmun. awesome. Yeah. So that's a thousand kilometer trail. So just like describe that to us a little bit. How old were you when you did this and what inspired you to, to go for a thousand kilometers around your country? I think I was 34 at the time. Okay. And actually it was,
0: it was unplanned. I didn't really spend too much time thinking about it, but what had happened in two, that was in 2009 in April, but in, in late 2008, my husband had passed away in an accident and I'd come home to Australia and I just was like, I just need to go for a walk. It's kind of, it was a bit forest gumpy, to be honest. And I just grabbed a backpack. I threw some very basic supplies in. It's a, it, you don't need a tent for that track. If you sleep in there, they have like little shelters along the way. Oh,
1: okay. So I knew I could
0: just go for five days on the food I carried, And then there would be a couple of track towns. I could pick up some supplies. It was so unorganized. And I just told my family, I'm like, can someone drive me out to the beginning of the track, which is just on the edge of Perth. And I, I said, I, I don't, and I wasn't planning to FKT it. I'm just going to go and I'm going to walk all day, every day. And I was like jogging a lot of it too. And then, yeah, and I just started realizing most of the way down that I was going really fast. So <laughs> you did a thousand kilometers in five days? No, 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 no. It wasn't five days. It was, um, oh. no, no, it was uh, 19 with a day off. Okay. Yeah, okay, so 18 still, days. Yeah. It, it, it's a record that can be beaten, I'm pretty sure, pretty easily. But um, it was still fast. I was doing like 50 to 60 Ks a day. And I took one complete rest day off just so I get some Achilles problems. But yeah, and I just got to the end. I was like, oh, that was actually really fun. <laughs> and I spent the whole time oh. alone. Like there was no yeah. one else on that track.
1: And was that like a therapeutic thing yeah. that you felt compelled to do after your husband passed away? I think it was,
0: yeah, I just needed to, I don't, I can't even really understand what, I just needed to go for a big walk mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's what I did, mm-hmm. a big walk and jog. Yeah, it was beautiful and I, to be honest, I'd always wanted to do the track, um, you know, it kind of traverses close to where I grew up as a kid and when I was in year 10 and you know, outdoor ed camp, we'd gone and done some sections of it so I'd been on the parts of the track mm-hmm. and I just liked the idea of it connecting the west coast to the south coast and yeah it's my hometown track, so it just made sense to go do it. I was actually just down on it last week. I just did a sixty five k section and I hadn't been on that section since since you know I did the full thing and oh I just loved it again didn't see a person it's a very very quiet little mm. section of the world
2: wow, so <clears throat> Again, going back to briefly summarizing, there's, you know, Fat Dog, um, Dragon's Back Race in Wales, Miwok 100, the Bear 100 miler. And then in the middle of all of this, you have this little point of Barkley Marathon's five attempts. So let's just like go there for a second. Like how, why, what, when did this happen? uh so I first went to the Barclay in
0: 2013 I think and I went 2013 14 15 16 and then I took a year off and then went again 18 so it was back to back pretty much uh and I wouldn't completely rule it out that I wouldn't go back I think although I'm not sure if I'm up for that much suffering anymore Yeah, I just, it, it, again, it was one of those ones before it became famous, like long before anyone knew about it. it was okay. Before the film came out on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, I was, it was on my radar for some reason. And I think partially from the adventure racing navigation background that I had is mm-hmm. sort of where I was heard about it. And then, uh yeah, I got the I got the secret the secret source from a friend say, of mine in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I was actually suspended over Mont Blanc on the little gondola once uh with a friend with a, a Belgian runner who had done it and he uh we had some shared experiences at other some other crazy races we'd done in the past and so he ended up telling me how to apply. So I yeah, I got in
2: and you I got a few I, letters I, of condolences. I did, I've years. had a few letters yes. of condolences over the years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and I just, I What's love What was your best Barclays. result? Like
2: how, how um, far so did you get? I,
0: the best, I always did one lap, which I was very proud of, which sounds like nothing much Absolutely. until you go there and you realize that one lap at the Barclays is still to this day one of the hardest things I've done, you know, every time wow. I've done it. Um, and then I've always gone out on the second lap, and the best I did was when I trained really hard in New Zealand for two months prior and came like in really fit, and I did um, like almost two laps. But I, yeah, there's, there's always something that goes wrong with Barclays. So there's, <laughs> there's there's
2: a there's, reason it's, it's the Barclays, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I've always come in on the second lap somewhere along the line. <laughs> For those listeners that aren't familiar with the Barclay Marathons, um, give us a brief synopsis of what this is and why it's so iconic. So the Barclay Marathons happens in
0: Tennessee in a place called Frozen Head State Park in a really – shitty month of the year, like where the weather is guaranteed to be atrocious, In which is in March. Sometime it changes around a little bit. Uh, and it's five loops in the park and it's mostly off trail uh, and you you have to navigate it. There's no course markings or anything. And you have to find books that are hidden in the park. Uh, you have to get about 13 books every lap. And then you do a lap and, I mean, he changes the, the format most years, but normally you go twice in one direction and then twice in the opposite direction and then the fifth lap if you, for those very rare people that have gotten there, get to choose which direction they go on the fifth lap. But uh, it's, the, I mean, it's so hard. It's got so, no one knows how far it is. They say it's a 20-mile loop, but it's definitely more than that. Um, and it takes you, you know, the best I've done was about a 10-hour, 45-minute lap for 20 miles in inverted commas.
2: In her uh, hands. Yeah, are. and you've got 13 okay.
0: hours pretty much to complete that lap.
2: Yeah. And, and the book thing, I think, is so cool. So, the reason he has these books is that you have to rip a page out, which is your race number, right? And that proves that you were at that spot and you got to that book. And then you have to produce all these pages when you finish your lap. And if you don't have all the pages, too bad, so sad. You didn't complete your lap. So yeah, and it's it is a race that I think what there's only been fifteen finishers or something since the inception of this race in the eighties. Yeah, I could be wrong on that.
0: No, you're absolutely right. There's been fifteen yeah. finishes, um, but thirteen unique finishes. So there's a couple that yes. have done it more than once. Jared and has done
2: it three times. Yeah, yeah.
0: and so has uh, okay. Brett. Yeah, Brett's done it twice yeah so it's you have to get these pages from the book the books are hard to find and you know it's scary out there in the woods it's it's Blair Witch Project style Tennessee <laughs> That's woods exactly it what, really I about. Yeah.
2: what I Yeah, about that race yes it is it's oh, brutal
0: God. it's brutal yeah it's and then you yeah know, the, I think the biggest challenge of that race for me and for probably everyone else is you're going to quit like everyone's going to quit obviously I mean except for the very rare times when someone doesn't and it's been a long time since they've had a finisher Um, is that you're going to quit so the question is when do you quit and and that's Mm -hmm. like always in your mind like at some point I'm going to have to give this up so do you give it up when you're about to like in the worst possible place or do you you know, decide that you don't want to go any further because it's going to give you. You have to. It takes a lot to get back to the finish line once you've quit. Um, you know, it can take you two to three hours to extract yourself from the course. So you have to keep that in your mind as you're going. And
2: uh, yeah, you're always.
0: It's yeah. a mental game. Like
2: <laughs> well, and this is the same race director that came up with the backyard ultra format, which is the exact same psychological thing is at some point it's basically a last man standing event. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you have to do one lap every hour on the hour until you can't anymore. And until there's only one person left. So you, everybody quits at some point except the last person. And when do you decide to quit? So anyhow, okay, so oh that's that's a summary of Barclays. So it's pretty cool that you've been there not just once, but yeah. five times.
0: I feel like I have a very intimate knowledge of that place. Like I just – that place is very special to me. And I think because I'm a navigator uh, as a sort of almost my primary sport, I have a – I really – have taken like I, I observe the land really well. I understand the terrain in there and every last little nuance of feature that's on the course. I I never get lost there. I, I know the course very well. That's never my problem. I have a lot of other things that are my problem on that course. <laughs> navigation yes. is not one of them. Uh, so I can't imagine. You know, I'm I'm always impressed with the the courage of those that go into that course that don't have navigation background because it's scary out there. Most
2: people. Yeah, mm.
1: most. People. Don't have that. No, you are not confidence. selling it for me, Nikki. <laughs> 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 I have so much respect, so much respect for for all of those who are drawn to races like that. And I think we could probably talk about that one for quite some time. But you've done something a little bit more recently that we want to spend a bit of time talking about. Uh, we understand you have done the snowman race in Bhutan. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, this is the, definitely the highlight of everything I've ever done
0: was getting to go to Bhutan recently. Uh, this year, the uh, country of Bhutan and uh, sort of instigated by the king himself, uh, decided to put on a race that was going to showcase their mountains on a, a very famous trek called the Snowman Trek. Uh, it's one of, known to be probably the hardest trek in the world because of its elevation, its altitude uh, and its remoteness and it's lack of any kind of anything out there. Uh, and so anyway, he wanted to do this race and as a way to showcase Bhutan and they're sort of coming out of the pandemic and trying to sort of promote the country a little bit and also to most importantly highlight some of the challenges uh, that the Himalayas face and the people who live in the Himalayas are faced because of climate change and the glacial receding you know, in Canada, we have these problems with the glaciers, but people don't live up directly under them, whereas in the Himalayas, people are getting their livelihoods uh, completely affected um, by the changes that are happening. And the, the, the Himalayas are probably one of the biggest places being affected by climate change. Um, so, yeah, so we went there and there was a, a group of 20 athletes who were invited to come from around the world, and we j- were joined nine local, national, incredible national athletes uh, and we raced kind of, <laughs> it's hard to race at, at elevation, but we, we trekked across and ran across uh, a 200 kilometer section of this track in the Bhutanese Himalayas. So yeah, it was, it was mind blowing. I'd never been wow. to the Himalayas. So this was my dream for me in a thousand different ways.
2: Okay, so we want to dive into Mm -hmm. all of this. When I actually had the pleasure of meeting you in person this summer, you were just about to go there. And I remember asking you like, how, like, not that you aren't amazing, you are, but how did you get on the radar of the king of Bhutan? And how did you get yourself invited to this race?
0: So I was very fortunate. And I still don't really know how myself, but um, so the king had created a, a committee uh, that uh, that were working called the Secretariat that were working in Bhutan to to put this race on, and then they hired a race director out of the out of the US, uh, Luis Escobar, who's well known mm-hmm. in the US for putting on mm-hmm. lots of races, uh, and and then also a athlete, international athlete uh, director, um, and so basically. There was a call out back in, before the pandemic, this has, race was sort of, was supposed to be happening in 2020. So before the pandemic, I actually applied, I think it was in like November, 2019, was when I first applied and you just had to send in your resume. I saw it and okay, I was like, it okay. you know, took me all of two seconds to decide I was putting a re- <laughs> an application in. And so did my friend Claire, um, who's also Calgary based. And uh, we both were like, this is no chance we're getting into this thing, but whatever, we we'll- Give it a go. Turns out she got in. I didn't get in. I wasn't selected originally in the 2019 call. And then I was like, okay, well, that it it was a Hail Mary anyway. And she still couldn't believe she got in. Um, she's she's a big adventure racer, and she has some she had some experience at elevation, like up in some big, big mountains. Uh and so yeah, they were looking for people who were gonna be not gonna die, you know, up about fifteen thousand feet above sea level. So literally, uh, like yeah, literally. Yeah, it's pretty risky. And then the pandemic happened and the race just got, you know, postponed, postponed, postponed. And by the time it was announced this July, end of July, they basically made the call as the country was reopening in Bhutan that they were going to do it. Um, There was a whole uh, few of the athletes couldn't make it anymore because you basically they they gave us like seven weeks' notice. And they're like, you need to be in Bhutan in seven weeks. And a lot of people had other lives. Like Jared Campbell was supposed to go there, for example, and he couldn't get the work off. And so there was a few big names that couldn't come. Anyway, so they – they uh, re-put the name out at the the call out again and to to the people that had already been in so they actually contacted Claire and said do you have any names and she's like get Nikki to come you already have her application just pull it out of the list and so and then i followed it up with cuz i was in colorado still uh, down with joanna and i'm like please 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 i basically begged i just begged unequivocally please let me come and and i got i got one of the two or three extra spots they had available for that so Oh my gosh, that was the, it was the greatest day of my life to find out that I, I got one of the spots.
1: Yeah, and only 20 spots, like you said, yes. right? So who, who else, um, like, does anybody stand out as like, oh my goodness, I was, I was doing this adventure with so-and-so, like who, who was yes, all on it?
0: it was incredible. So um, there was uh, Simon Matui, who is, uh, got the world record for the fastest ascent of Mount Kilimanjaro, He's a Tanzanian guide on the mountain and just one of the most incredible humans on the planet, uh, an incredible athlete. So he was there. Uh, Luke Nelson, who has completed three laps of the Barclay, and I know him through Barclay Circles. Uh, he's incredible athlete and he's basically Jared Campbell's partner in crime for a lot of the big FKTs they do and projects. Um uh, and then uh, Magda Boulay was originally on the list, but she couldn't come for an injury. But she was coming to to be part of the production team and help with the oh, race. Wow. And so just to be able to hang out with her and knowing that you know I was potentially actually taking one of her spots, that was really cool. So many great names. There were some big FKTs. Uh, Ashley Winchester, I think is her last name. She's got like I don't know fifty four FKTs or something like that. Some oh just goodness. really really big names. Mm. Um, also on the list was uh, Roxanne Vogel, who is, has the seven summits, you know, so we've got people who have stood on Everest and all the other tall mountains in the, on the planet. And she's, you know, like you look at the resume like that, and I've never been above 14 and feet from when I was in Colorado. So, you know, these people have experience up there. So it was very, inti- it was intimidating, but was it? Yeah. I also felt like, you know what, I, this is my wheelhouse as well. So I think all totally. of those people have as much experience or more, certainly a lot faster people that on that list than I am, you know, like like really mm-hmm. fast runners that I'm not anymore. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, but I know how to, I, I love being out there. And, and so I was intimidated, but also there. confident yeah. that I, I, I yeah. belonged.
2: That's yeah. awesome. So talk us through the experience a little bit. Now, I know you arrived and you actually went to Nepal first to do a little bit of acclimatization and training. Tell us how, you know, in the, the lead up to going to Bhutan.
0: Yeah, so in a, I'm very fortunate in the position that I work for myself. I'm a consultant. So I was able to take extra time and I decided if I'm going to go and do the trip of my lifetime, I want to be in the best shape I can possibly be. So Claire and I um, both together and her husband and her sister came as well. We actually went to Nepal first uh, for two and a half weeks. In advance of the race and that itself was a bucket list for me I, yeah. I've always dreamed to go and hike up to Everspace Camp and to explore the Kumba Valley and the, the mountains in Nepal so I just couldn't believe I was getting you know two <laughs> killing, killing two dreams at once kind of thing mm-hmm. and so yeah getting two dreams at once and so I we went to Nepal we, we hired a guide so that we could move at a pace that we wanted to move at And get up as high as possible as quick as possible and stay high as long as we could just to be able to get those you know our bodies adapted so we did Mm -hmm. and fortunately and to test out some of our medication that we were going to take like we were both taking the Dymox, which is um -hmm. you know for high altitude sickness and just see how our bodies survived up there and so yeah we did we we were it was incredible and i i actually came back from nepal going oh oh, oh, the, the actual adventure's still to come. <laughs> like, I thought, that's it. That was the right. best trip of my life was going to <laughs> Nepal. And then, yeah, and then we flew um, back to Thailand in Bangkok and then we were put on a, a flight all together as a team. We met the whole team there and we went into mm. uh, Paro, Bhutan together uh, mm. as, a, as the actual just athletes went in. And then, yeah, it was – we were in Bhutan for probably 10 days before the race and we got – completely treated like royalty we met every important big wig there was in the country to meet I swear and it was just such a treat I had to keep pinching myself we were we went to temples we were met like we were blessed by monks and uh llamas and it was we just had this incredible culture experience and again all of us we called it summer camp we kept saying oh that's right we're actually here to do a race like we couldn't we had to keep reminding ourselves <laughs> uh and then Can they, they took us off into the mountains
2: okay i was just wondering like how much media was there surrounding this mm-hmm. at this point because this was supposed to be an opportunity to highlight like you said the climate change so what was the purpose of some of these um, um photo ops for lack of a better word
0: yeah, there were definitely photo ops. So they had um, hired a big, league like, journalist from Wales to come over, and he was capturing a lot of that, and he had connections with some of the big media um, outlets, and uh, so he was trying to push news out there, and then, you know, we we're everyone in the country knew we were there because Bhutan had spent three years waiting for this race to happen, and so, yeah, there was, we were just everywhere we went, they were, they were having a lot of photos, and yeah, it was just really special, but it didn't feel like a forced media event. It just felt like a real treat. Like we were just, we all couldn't believe how lucky we were. Um, was it tiring? Did it tire you out before the race or was it energizing? No, I mean, I just kept thinking for myself, my mindset was like, this is a, this is a chance of a lifetime. Like I don't, I don't get to choose to be tired. Like I don't care. There's no option to not be tired or anything. Like this is, this is, I'm, this is such a gift. I'm taking it all in and I'm just not going to let myself think about whether I'm tired or if it's going to ruin my race or whatever. Um, yeah. So I think it was tiring maybe for some, (laughs) it was, it was a lot. Um, it was a lot of eating. I remember that we're all like, Oh, we're starting the race, like,
1: you know, all over our race weight for sure. Yeah. And so did it feel like a race in that way? Like you, you're, you it's sort of this intimate little group of 20 people. Did you feel like, oh, I want to work with you? Or were you like, you're my competitor and I'm trying to beat you?
0: Yeah. So no, and that's exactly the point. By the time we started, we were all family. Like we just cared yeah. so much about each other's success. No one had a clue what this it was a big fat experiment, this whole thing. No There's never been a race at this elevation. So no one had a yeah. clue if it was even possible. And right. I think even... The race directors, international race directors, Lewis, was a little concerned. He didn't even know, like, is this going to even work? Like, what's it going to be like out there? And, you know, Bhutan as a country just came forward and they put on this spectacular event that was one of the best i organised I've ever been to. I mean, the wow. whole country was behind it, The the – we had the media tied up. We had all the weather people tied up. We had the medical system tied up. We had the army tied up. Like it was the helicopters. <laughs> they have two helicopters in the country and we had them both for the race. Um, so yeah, it was wow. super, super well organized and the people were just behind it. Yeah. And it was 200 kilometers over five days. And, uh, okay. it wasn't much of a race, so to speak. Although. Yeah. We were told, you know, like the Bhutanese athletes are here to race. So let's give them a show. That's was sort of the, the, and and we actually thought that, you know, people like Luke Nelson would just destroy the course, you know, like he's such a strong athlete. And I think he would be the first one to say we were just floored by how incredible the Bhutanese athletes were. And in the end they, Mm. they wiped
2: the floor with all of us. (laughs) Hmm. So, yeah, I'm really curious. Like, let's be honest at that kind of elevation, not just elevation, but I'm sure Vert, right, that you're doing. Um, how much running, actual running, was there? Very was little there on my of, behalf. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the
0: first twenty kilometers I ran and the last twenty kilometers I ran, um, because I was on path and it was lower down. And by low down I mean only ten thousand feet above sea level. <laughs> uh and then, you know, you're jogging the downhills, but even the downhills were really you sorry. You could physically jog dog the downhills like you cardiovascularly were able to jog the downhills, but the technicality of the trail, the terrain okay. actually made that even difficult. So there was a lot of careful, you know, foot placement on the downhills. Uh, but the uphills, no, I'm not like I don- wouldn't even barely call it a walk in some places like we were. Yeah. I was on the highest day. I was taking three or four steps and then stopping to breathe. Like it was, yes. It's, yes. it was really high. We spent like
2: right? 10,000 feet sometimes. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And, and speaking of, so you, you said you went to Nepal and you're kind of trying to acclimatize and, and playing with your kit of drugs and <laughs> Diamox and <laughs> exactly. the whole thing. And how is my body going to respond to high altitude? And I'm laughing because we went and hiked Kilimanjaro back in 2007 but it was the same thing so we all had our drugs out at every dinner like oh I got a headache oh you should use this and my stomach's off and you you know here try this and uh but what was interesting was that all of us responded to the high altitude differently in our symptoms and so how did you fare like you're you're Mm. obviously not a, a complete novice at it but were you surprised or um taken aback by anything that you experienced? And did it differ from what others went through?
0: Yeah, it was, that would be the, the keys. Everyone was very different. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of surprises, I think, for people. Um, I I am very grateful, is all I can say, is I fared very well up there. Um, I wasn't completely, I didn't avoid all the symptoms, but I was... I was very disciplined with my nutrition and my I'm not normally I'm very lazy with nutrition and the water like anyone that knows me knows I am but up there I was really really strict yeah. so I was five to six liters of water a day and I knew that was important um, particularly because I was one of the few people who was taking Dimex prophylactically a lot of athletes made the decision and a, I think a wise decision in some regards to not take Dimex because it's diuretic and so you're you're oh, sort of like nice. you're up there and you would know at elevation you have to take mm-hmm. a lot of extra water, like three mm-hmm. times to mm-hmm. four times oh, more. Yeah. And now you're also taking a drug that's that's getting rid of all the liquid yeah. out of your body. Um, and so that's why I was like five to six liters of water a day. It's a lot of and water. And then I would pee yeah. like five, six, seven times a night. I never pee. I just pee oh, so much. Wow. So it was a real yeah. pain in the butt. I learned to pee in a bucket while I was in it in my oh, tent because nice. you don't get out of your tent at Negative 10 and go to the toilet seven times in the night, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, lots of peeing. And then, um, you know, I didn't have headaches, which I was really happy with, but a lot of people had low-grade headaches. And then Mm -hmm. the other big part, I think the main symptom I felt was the up very, very high. You just – everything's a little blurry. It's like you're – you can't quite – you know, you can't quite, your brain's ticking over a little slower and, uh, you just can't quite focus on anything. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the thing I noticed the most. And of of course, the pace that you're going is just very, very slow. Um, but no, Mm I, I was okay. I slept really well, which I mean, I'm a very good sleeper and I was worried I would lose that up there, but I didn't. And for a lot of people, that's the first symptom is not sleeping well. Uh, But, yeah, no, there was um, 12 of the international athletes, there was 20 of us, 12 ended up getting evac'd or having to hike out themselves um, because of symptoms that were, in some cases, much threatening, actually. Yeah.
2: Eight of you left, plus the nine. Plus the nine Bhutanese,
0: they all completed it, yeah. Yeah. So it got, it was sad. It got smaller and smaller as it went on. I remember the last night, it was just 17 of us in the tent instead of 29, and it was, Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was sad to see some really incredible athletes get taken down by the, by the altitude.
2: Yeah. Well, and further to the point of not just anybody can do this, like you really need to be selected um, to even have a hope of forget about not dying, (laughs) just Um, completing and not, being a liability mm-hmm. to the to the to the race right so mm-hmm. yeah exactly and b-
0: getting extracted from out there where we were yeah. I mean it was by helicopter that was the yeah. only, only, was the only way. way
1: yeah wow and, and now you said that they were trying to bring awareness to climate change and stuff so what did you kind of experience on mm-hmm. that level like mm-hmm. were you seeing the glaciers receding or like describe to us the scenery yeah, des- and the environment for sure. yeah
0: yeah, so it's very, I mean, Himalayan, I guess, would be the best. But it's different. it was different to Nepal. Um, they We were in the highlands, which uh, the peaks were rising to 7,000 metres around there. So I don't know what that, 26,000 sort of feet above sea level. Uh, so not quite the big 8,000ers, but Bhutan has the highest unclimbed 7,000-metre peaks in the world. Like it has the highest unclimbed peak in the world. So they're very big mountains, white-capped, and then these valleys in between that are... Where people live, like, <laughs> and and they were living off, um, you know, they've got yaks up there, so the yak herders, and they grow things, and then they also collect cordyceps, which is one of the big industries up there. It's a very, very rare and very expensive, fungi that um, is m- supposed to be medicinal. It's mm-hmm. basically the Himalayan version of a truffle. Uh, so mm. you pull them out of the ground and they're they're very expensive. So this is the industry up there. Um, okay. So the changing um, climate, like the, I mean, for example, we were there and the monsoon was supposed to be completed and the monsoon was three weeks late and it had been a really rough monsoon. As you probably remember the news about Pakistan this year and all the floods. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mm-hmm. were there at the same time. And so, yeah, there were late monsoons. So that, everyone's just living with a lot of uncertainty and these people living up there in these villages in the summers trying to make a, a, a living out of there and living in beautiful lives in these beautiful places uh, and just mm-hmm. being very uncertain. And then the big issue they have is the, there's 20-something glacier lakes up there, 17 maybe, uh, that are bordering any minute to catastrophically explode and, and go down, you know, to break as the right as the monsoon increases and the glaciers melt and when one of those goes it's uh it's devastating for everything downstream so it's called a Mm -hmm. gloff a glacial lake overflow flood outflow flood and they've had one in 2017 i think that was really bad and yeah they're monitoring they've got early warning systems but the people villages have about 20 minutes if that if that
2: breaks and, and they don't have helicopters on standby to evacuate no, them, obviously. No, they have so. two helicopters
0: in the entire country and they're brand yeah, new. They've no, <laughs> already yeah. just got them. No. Yeah. So, I mean, you see definitely, um, you know, people still trying to live in, in places that are going to be massively affected by the, the changing climate. And who knows what that's going to look like in the next 20 years, right? And similarly for people who live in uh, low-lying ocean areas too, right? Like the two spots are both very vulnerable. Uh, yeah but wonderful people wonderful people and they were just they'd come out we would run by and they the king had said to us when we met him for dinner we had a reception which was wonderful and he said he wanted what well, part of the reason he wanted to do this race is he wanted to tell his countrymen his highland countrymen that he cares and so he sent these this race through their land and to showcase that you know we're listening to your concerns and and we're trying to actually let the whole world know. And so here are these international athletes going through, paying attention. And they came out with like tea. And there was an old man that had cut up apples and met us on this, the trail and gave out apples. And just these people have nothing. But they, yeah, they loved having us come through. And if your listeners want to learn more, there's a Netflix show called A Yak in the Classroom, Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom. It's an outstanding film we, we slept a night in Monana and those school kids that the movie is about came and sang for us. So it was, Oh, well, we'll
2: definitely link to that in the show notes and check that out. Yeah. So you've already spoken a little bit to it, but you know, what were some of your biggest takeaways? What did you learn in this experience in Bhutan?
0: Oh, well, from a personal level, I learned that again, I just, I just love this shit. <laughs> I just
2: love going cool places. <laughs> not getting old. <laughs> no, no.
0: I, I just love the expedition style of, of anything. Um, no, I just, like just to see a place that is st- still very pristine and to, I just love meeting people that live so very, very differently to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you forget that, you know, we're not the only way of living in the, in the West. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in West Africa when I was younger as well. So, I mean, I, this wasn't new to me to go to a, a very different culture to mine and a very different way of living. But, but yet, you know, everyone's sort of striving for similar things. You know, people still can appreciate the beautiful places around them. They need their resources. They care about their kids and their families. They love to have fun, uh, and the Bhutanese love to have fun. They they have some great sports and they laugh a lot and. Yeah, there's just a shared humanity, I think, which, I mean, something I understand, but you sometimes have to get out of your own, your own setting to really appreciate Absolutely. that more and be reminded of it. And then I think as well, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty simple person. I live simply and I, I sort of one of my values is simplicity and, and travel does that again to you, right? But that idea of yeah. just not needing much and also the power of the body just to move and the importance of us being people who need to move.
1: Yeah, I know. And at the beginning, you were talking about, uh, you know, when you entered sports, you kind of made those discoveries along the way of like, wow, I can go pretty far. Like I, I, I get better the longer uh, a race goes on. And, you know, I can see a lot on my own two feet. And so, you know, having these experiences and, and meeting people from different cultures, like, have you kept in touch with some of the people that you met? there at all or like is there even a way to keep in touch yeah yes there is yeah no
0: I made great friends with the with the wonderful Bhutanese people particularly the athletes I was with and a lot of the people that were involved organizing I'm texting with them almost every other day actually but I'm intending to go back so I'm keeping in contact with people and yeah you definitely just felt like there was this moment in our lives that we shared And it didn't matter if we're like what our backgrounds were and where we came from and where we live, but we all were in this moment together and us and the Bhutanese athletes and people from, you know, all over. And it was, I think, yeah, we all appreciated how special that was. And uh, yeah, we have a, we have a WhatsApp group that is pretty active still. We're always
2: chit-chatting on it. That's awesome. Um, So would you go back? Do you have plans to go back or are there too many other places on this planet? No, No, I do have plans. I actually have plans professionally to go back though as a, um, yeah.
0: So I'm actually after, after we've recorded this podcast, I actually have another meeting with Bhutan. Um, so I'm in negotiations right now to potentially go back and do some work for their education system. I'm an educator. Um, my, that's my, that's my other, my actual job. (laughs) I'm not a professional athlete. Uh, And, uh, yeah, so I'm definitely in the next 12 months planning to go back and, and do some work there and go back to the Himalayas for sec- You know, I would go back to the Himalayas a hundred times over. I think anyone that goes there would say that.
2: That's amazing. You can combine, you know, all of the different mm-hmm. things you have
1: to offer in, yeah. in different ways in that country. That's great. So you've had a lot of different experiences in your life as an athlete and traveling around and... Does anything stand out to you like a person or an event that's particularly inspired you in your running life?
0: Yeah, I think I was thinking about this. What is my my most favorite thing I've done? It's like picking a favorite child. It's almost impossible. However, I think that my years at TDG, I think Tour de Gion in Italy, hands down has been, I mean, other than Bhutan, (laughs) hands down, Mm has been the best uh, racing experience of my life Um, and I think it's not so much because the race course is incredible and it suited me and I did really well there and obviously I kept going back but it was the people that I became you know made very good friends in in Italy and and in European races there and I still feel like I always say I became a little bit Austin after the I was actually there four years one of the years I didn't finish so yeah there was Four years, I went to the Ulster Valley and, and became part of that landscape. And I feel like, you know, my blood and soul is like laid out up around the Ulster Valley. And, the you know, I still know people there and keep in contact with them. And so, yeah, I think, I think Italy and that race particularly had the, has had the biggest impact on me as an athlete.
2: Well, what, what can I say? It's my dream to get there, not to run necessarily Tour de Jean or however you say it, but to run new Tim B or at least something mm. in Italy. And we've had so many people on this podcast speak of that region with such warmth and passion. Mm-hmm. And you can just hear it in your voice. Um, before we move on to our rapid fire questions that we'd like to end our episodes with, you mentioned what's next for you professionally in Bhutan, but do you have anything else on the adventure radar coming up?
0: Uh, you know, I actually don't because I'm kind of hanging out to see what happens with Bhutan and what that's going to look like. And I'm, I'm someone that isn't, I'm not one of these people that has the year planned out. Like I know a lot of people you know, around November, they get all their lottery entries in and they, you know, wait to see how the year pans out. I tend to go into a year and see, oh, I wonder what will present itself. Uh, and if nothing comes up on a race side of things, I'll just go into an adventure, which I, I'm very happy to do. So yeah, no, I'm waiting to see what Bhutan looks like. Um, I've got a couple of efforts. You know, uh, well, uh, not necessarily FKTs, but a couple of long trails I want to attempt as well in the next year or so. Um, yeah, just doing, you know, I love mountain climbing the Canadian Rockies, so just getting back out to the mountains. I'm not as passionate about like always doing racing as I used to, unless it's something really unique. Uh, yeah, but no, I don't actually, it's very weird for me, but you know, I just went and did this huge week of running down the south coast of Australia and just had the greatest time going, you know, I just love moving. I just yes, – I don't yes. need a race to keep going um, if I want to get fit and really, like, you know, highly mm-hmm. tuned. But at my age now, I'm less interested in that. Is just making sure I'm continuing to keep moving. So, yeah, there
1: will be something. What a
0: wonderful way to live.
2: That's that's amazing. <laughs> I um, thought you might
1: have yeah. said hard rock because didn't you pace Joanna at hard rock? I did. But then, see, after, after I did that, I then spent the
0: following week up there and I went and ran all the hard rock sections and then did about – a bunch of other sections. And I, I right. thought to myself, you know, I don't think I want to do this race. I think I just, I would come back and continue you just to did it. Colorado. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So no, definitely. I mean, it, that was on my list, but I had been in the lottery five times and I kind of gave up on the lottery. So.
2: <laughs> yeah. Fair. <laughs> yeah. It takes, it takes oh, like a decade to get into any of these big races anymore. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move into our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your favorite mantra?
0: Surrender to the existence. Mm. I say it all
2: the time when I'm out there.
0: You just, this is all the pain and the fun and the joy and the sadness and the hardship. You just, this is, it just is. And one day it'll end. At some point it'll end. And right now it isn't. So just suck it up. (laughs) Let's not not suck it up. It's just surrender. (laughs) Just surrender to it all. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I like that. And we have not heard that one before. So very unique. Okay. Do you have a favorite place to run? I think this is like a very unfair question for it you, is. but I can't wait to hear your answer. It is an unfair question. Uh, I mean, obviously, everywhere in the Canadian Rockies. But I think just
0: from a day to day perspective, when I'm in Canada, like the Broward Creek is, yeah, I have to say, Broward Creek. It's right in my backyard. I live in the far southwest corner of Calgary. So it's 25, 30 minutes for me to get there. I've run every trail. I'll run them all over a hundred times again.
2: I love everything about Brad Creek. So Brad Creek. You know, I think we're probably, when you're in Canada, very close neighbors. Because I live in the southwest corner of Calgary and I bought my house exactly where I did for that exact purpose of how yeah. close can I be to hit the trails and Brad Creek. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay. Our next question is, what is your, Okay. This is now another unfair question, but do you still have a bucket list race or place or experience that you want to explore?
0: I absolutely do. Yes. <laughs> so that I've always too. wanted to do the Madeira Island Ultra Trail, mm-hmm. the Mewet, um, and I have for a number of years. However, that's become almost impossible to get into. So now I'm, I would still love to do the race. However, I would settle and it probably wouldn't be settling and probably be leveling up for a trip to Madeira and do a solo, like run every trail adventure on Madeira Island. So Madeira is definitely my next, uh, place I'm looking forward to, but I have lots of things like Newfoundland. It's mostly all the places that are remote and empty.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Newfoundland for sure. Okay. Do you have a favorite running book or movie?
0: my favorite book it's not that inspiring but I just found it very interesting it's called Endure by Alex Hutchinson I don't know if you've read it but it's uh we, yes. we're very
2: familiar with that book. yeah we love it yeah I, I think I read it in like
0: 24 hours and I I mean I have a kinesiology background my my first degree was kinesiology so I really like the physiology side of that and yes. yeah yes. I think that would be my go-to running book
2: yeah and he tells stories which highlights his yeah. his um Points, which is really exactly. entertaining it makes science interesting exactly yeah. I'm a, and I'm such right. a geek yeah. so that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that book's been mentioned by many many people so I guess there's a lot of geeks on our show yeah um, including <laughs> Carolyn and I all right so final question what is your favorite post-run indulgence beer and chips that's very easy <laughs> awesome. is there any
0: is there yeah. anything else like, what else yeah. do you have after a run?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to agree with you. I'm not a huge beer drinker, but chips for sure and something cold. Yes. Yeah, beer yeah. They,
0: we I finish every run, beer and chips, beer and chips, beer and chips. Occasionally, if it's really, really hot and it's a special occasion, Prosecco in the mountains. That's
2: another ooh, thing
1: ooh, we're wow. known to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That when sounds fancy. Niggly, why not? <laughs> yeah, Do you like exactly. dating, right? No, uh, that's that's awesome. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation yeah. and I I think we could have a few follow-ups, but <laughs> thank you for sharing. A little bit of uh, the stories of the places you've been and the things you've done, not just throughout the last several years, but to your trip this year in Bhutan. Mm -hmm. If our listeners would like to follow your adventures and, and see some of the amazing photographs that you take when you're on your runs, where can they find you? Uh so I, I am I love to write. Uh it's one of
0: my passions. So I keep a blog. Um, um it's very, okay. very old school and old fashioned, and I make no apologies for my long form nonfiction. Wow. Like everyone's into short bits, but I write long. So um <laughs> uh, yeah, I know exactly. Nikki Wren at BlogSpot is my it's a blog spot. I think it's just named Nikki Wren. Uh okay, and awesome. then I'm on uh Instagram. I don't use that very much. I'm not much of a social media person, but um yeah so blog and instagram to a certain degree i'm on facebook as well but that's generally where i share some of my stuff uh yeah but i'm a writer i love to tell stories in words written form so that's the majority of it
2: when you spend as much time on the trail as you do um i know there's a lot of time to think and a lot of thoughts that need to be expressed sometimes in written form so i'm definitely going to check out your blog yes and we'll link
1: it up in the show notes Mm -hmm. too excellent awesome it was was lovely to get to know you that big big smile we talked about has just been on full display I'm sorry for the listeners that you don't get to see it but it was lovely to meet you and uh, keep on adventuring we can't wait to follow along
0: never stop that's the rule just don't stop especially at this age don't stop